Tertium Organum by Peter Yaspensky. Read by Alice Flanagan. Chapter 22. Because of the length of this chapter, I have divided it into three parts. This is part two. And Yaspensky notes. Describing Illuminations, Bohm writes in one of his books. And again, Yaspensky quotes. Suddenly, dot, dot, dot. My spirit did break through, dot, dot, dot. Even into the innermost birth of genitor of the deity, and there I was embraced with love, as a bridegroom embraces his dearly beloved bride. But the greatness of the triumphing that was in the spirit I cannot express either in speaking or writing. Neither can it be compared to anything, but that wherein the life is generated in the midst of death, and in it like the resurrection from the dead. In this light my spirit suddenly saw through all, and in and by all creatures, even in herbs and grass, it knew God, who he is, and how he is, and what his work is, and suddenly in that light my will was set on, by a mighty impulse, to describe the being of God. But because I could not presently apprehend the deepest births of God in their being and comprehend them in my reason, there passed almost twelve years before the exact understanding thereof was given to me. And it was with me as with a young tree which is planted on the ground, and at first is young and tender, and flourishing to the eye, especially if it comes on lustily in its growing. But it does not bear fruit presently, and though it blossoms, they fall off. Also many a cold wind, frost and snow puff upon it before it comes to any growth and bearing of fruit. Baum's books are full of wonderment before these mysteries with which he was confronted. Lesbinsky continues his quote. I was as simple concerning the hidden mysteries as the meanest of all. But my virgin of the wonders of God taught me that I must write of his wonders, though indeed my purpose is to write this for the memorandum for myself. Not I, and I that I am, know these things, but God knows them in me. If you will behold your own self and the outer world, and what is taking place thereon, you will find that you, with regard to your external being, are that external world. And Dispensky continues. The dialogues between the disciple and master are remarkable, and in brackets, disciple and master should be understood to refer to the lower and higher consciousness of man. And Spensky continues to quote, The disciple said to his master, How may I come to the supersensual life, that I may see God and hear him speak? His master said, When thou canst throw thyself but for a moment into that where no creature dwelleth, then thou hearest what God speaketh. Disciple, is that near at hand or far off? Master, it is in thee. And if thou canst for a while but cease from all thy thinking and willing, then thou shalt hear the unspeakable words of God. Disciple, how can I hear him speak when I stand still from thinking and willing? Master, when thou standest still from the thinking of self and the willing of self, when both thy intelligent and will are quiet and passive to all impressions of the external world and spirit, and when thy soul is winged up, and above that which is temporal, the outward senses, and imagination being locked up by the holy abstraction, then the eternal hearing, seeing, and speaking will be revealed in thee, and so God heareth and seeth through thee, being now the organ of his spirit. And so God speaketh in thee, and whispereth to thy spirit, and thy spirit heareth his voice. Blessed art thou therefore, if that thou canst stand still from self-thinking and self-willing, 
and can stop the wheel of imagination and senses, forasmuch as hereby thou mayest arrive at length to see the great salvation of God, being made capable of all manner of divine sensations and heavenly communications, since it is naught indeed but thine own hearing and willing that do wonder thee, so that thou dost not see and hear God. Disciple, loving master, I can no more endure anything should divert me. How shall I find the nearest way to him? Master, where the way is hardest, there walk thou, and take up what the world rejecteth, and what the world doth, do not thou. Walk contrary to the world in all things, and then thou comest to the nearest way to him. Disciple, dot, dot, dot. Oh, how may I arrive at the unity of will, and how come into the unity of vision? Master, dot, dot, dot. Mark now what I say. The right eye looketh in thee into eternity. The left eye looketh backward in thee into time. If thou now sufferest thyself to be always looking into nature and the things of time, it will be impossible for thee to ever arrive at the unity which thou wishest for. Remember this, and be upon thy watch. Give not thy mind leave to enter in, nor to fill itself with, that which is without thee, neither look thou backward upon thyself. Dot, dot, dot. Let not thy left eye deceive thee by making continually one representation after the other, and stirring up thereby the earnest longing and self-proprietary. But let thy right eye command back this left, dot, 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 and only bringing the eye of time into the eye of eternity, dot, dot, dot and descending through the light of God into the light of nature, dot, 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 thou shalt arrive at the unity of vision or uniformity of will. In another dialogue, the disciple and master converse about heaven and hell. And Dispensky quotes, The disciple asked his master, Whither go the souls when they leave these mortal bodies? His master answered, The soul needeth no going forth anywhere. Disciple, does it not enter into heaven or hell? Master, no, there is no such kind of entering. Dot, dot, dot. The soul hath heaven and hell in itself. Dot, dot, dot. And whether of these two states, either heaven or hell, shall be manifested in the soul, in that it standeth. And Aspensky continues, The quotations given here are sufficient to indicate the character of the writings of the unlearned shoemaker from the little provincial town in Germany of the 16th and 17th centuries. Bohm is remarkable for the bright intellectuality of his comprehensions, although there is in them a strong moral element also. In the book above mentioned, and in brackets, the varieties of religious experience, Professor James dwells with great attention on Christian mysticism, which afforded him much material for establishing the fact of the cognitive aspect of mysticism. I borrow from him the following description of the mystical experiences of certain Christian saints. And Dispensky again quotes, St. Ignatius confessed one day to Father Lainers that a single hour of meditation at Manifesta taught him more truths about heavenly things than all the teachings of all the doctors put together could have taught him. Dot, dot, dot. One day in Orison, on the steps of the choir of the Dominican Church, he saw in a distinct manner the plan of the divine wisdom in the creation of the world. On another occasion, during the procession, his spirit was ravished on God, and it was given him to contemplate, in a form of images fitted to the weak understanding of a dweller on earth, 
the deep mystery of the Holy Trinity. This last vision flooded his heart with such sweetness that mere memory of it in after times made him shed abundant tears. One day, being in Orison, St. Teresa writes, It was granted to me to perceive in one instant how all things are seen and contained in God. I did not perceive them in their proper form, and nevertheless the view I had of them was of a sovereign clearness and had remained vividly impressed upon my soul. It is one of the most signal of all, the graces which the Lord has granted me. The view was so subtle and delicate that the understanding cannot grasp it. She goes on to tell, Professor James writes, how it was as if the deity was an enormous sovereignly limp diamond, in which all our actions were contained in such a way that their full sinfulness appeared evident as never before. Our Lord made me comprehend, she writes, in what way it is that one God can be in three persons. He made me see it so clearly that I remained as extremely surprised as I was comforted. Dot, dot, dot. And now when I think of the Holy Trinity, or hear it spoken of, I understand how the three adorable persons form only one God, and I experienced an unspeakable happiness. Christian mysticism, as Professor James shows, is very near to the Vedanta and the Upanishads. That fountainhead of Christian mysticism, Dionysus the Areopagite, tells about the absolute truth in negative formulae only, and Dispensky quotes, The cause of all things is neither soul or intellect, nor has it imagination, opinion or reason or intelligence, nor is it reason or intelligence, nor is it spoken or thought. It is neither number, nor order, nor magnitude, nor littleness, nor equality, nor inequality, nor similarity, nor dissimilarity. It neither stands, nor moves, nor rests, dot, dot, dot. It is neither essence, nor eternity, nor time. Even the intellectual contact does not belong to it. It is neither science, nor truth. It is not even royalty or wisdom, not one, not unity, not divinity or goodness, nor even spirit as we know it. And Aspensky continues, the writings of the mystics of the Greek Orthodox Church are collected in the books The Love of the Good, comprising five large and formidable volumes. I select several examples of the profound and fine mysticism from the book Superconsciousness and the Paths of its Attainment by M. V. Lodzeski in Russian who studied these books and found therein remarkable examples of philosophical thought. And Dispensky quotes, Imagine a circle, says Arva Dorothius, 7th century, and in the middle of it a centre, and from this centre forthgoing radii rays. The farther these radii go from the centre, the more divergent and remote from one another they become. Conversely, the nearer they approach to the centre, the more they come together among themselves. Now suppose that this circle is the world, and the very middle of it, God, and the straight line, radii, going from the centre to the circumference, or from the circumference to the centre, are the paths of life of men. And in this case also, to the extent that the saints approach the middle of the circle, desiring to approach God, do they, by so doing, come nearer to God and to one another? Dot, dot, dot. Reason similarly with regard to their withdrawing. When they withdraw from God, Dot, dot, dot. they withdraw also from one another, and by so much as they withdraw from one another do they withdraw from God. Such is the attribute of love. To the extent that we are distant from God and do not love him, 
each of us is far from his neighbour also. If we love God, then to the extent that we approach to him through love of him, do we unite in love with our neighbours, and the closer our union with them, the closer is our union with God also. Dispensky's asterisk this, and in brackets, Superconsciousness, page 266. And the asterisk says, The author of Superconsciousness, M. V. Lodzewski, told me that in the summer of 1910, he was in Yasnaya Poliana, a residence of L. Tolstoy, and he conversed with him about the mystics and the love of the good. Tolstoy was at first very sceptical about them, but when Mr. Lodzewski read to him the quotation given here about the circle, Tolstoy became very enthusiastic and ran into another room and got a letter in which a triangle was drawn. It appeared that he had independently almost grasped the thought of Avadorotheus and had written to someone that good was the apex of the triangle. Men, the points within the angles, approaching to one another, they approach to God. Approaching God, they do the same toward one another. Several days afterward, Tolstoy rode over to Mr. Lodzewski's, near Tula, and read different parts of The Love of the Good, much regretting that he had not known the books before. And that's the end of the asterisk from P.D. Spensky. And Spensky continues to quote from Superconsciousness. Here now, says St. Isaac of Syria, from the 6th century, how man becomes refined, acquires spirituality, and becomes like the invisible forces, dot, dot, dot. When the vision soars above things earthly, and above all troubles over earthly doings, and begins to experience revelations concerning that which is within, hidden from sight, and when it will turn its gaze upward, and experience faith in the guidance of future ages, and the ardent desire for promised things, when it will search for hidden mysteries, then faith itself consumes this knowledge and so transforms and regenerates it that it becomes entirely spiritual. Then may the vision soar on pinions into regions incorporeal, may touch the depths of the inaccessible sea, participating in the mind divine and the miraculous acts of guidance in the hearts of thinking and feeling beings, discovering spiritual mysteries which become then comprehensible by the refined and simple mind. Then the inner senses are awakened to spirituality after a manner that they will be in the life immortal and incorruptible. But even here, redemption of the mind is a true symbol of the general redemption. Espensky now quotes from Superconsciousness, page 370. When the grace of the Holy Spirit, says Maxim Kapsalitovic, descends on anyone, there is shown to him nothing in the sensuous world but that which he never saw or never imagined. Then the understanding of such a man receives from the Holy Spirit the highest and hidden mysteries, which according to the divine Paul, neither the human eye can understand nor the human reason comprehend unaided. And in brackets, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. And that thou mayest understand how our reason sees them, try to apprehend that which I say to thee. Wax, when it is placed far from the fire, is solid, and it is possible to take it and hold it. But as soon as it is thrown in fire, it immediately melts, takes fire, burns, blazes, and ends thus in the midst of flames. So also is human reason when it is alone by itself, ununited with God. Then it comprehends in the usual way and according to its power all things surrounding it. But as it approaches the fire of divinity and of the Holy Ghost, then it is entirely enveloped by the divine fire and immersed in divine meditation 
and then in that fire of divinity it is impossible for it to think about its own affairs and about that which it desires. End of quote. And Dispensky continues quoting from Superconsciousness, and this is from page 372. St. Basil the Great says about the revelation of God, absolutely unutterable and indescribable are the lightning-like splendours of divine beauty. Neither can speech express nor hearing apprehend. Shall we name the brilliance of the morning star, the brightness of the moon, the radiance of the sun? The glory of all these is unworthy of being compared with the true light standing farther from it than it does the gloomiest night and the most terrible darkness from midday brightness. This beauty, invisible to the bodily eyes, comprehensible to soul and mind only, if it illumines some of the saints, leaves in them an unbearable wound through their desire, that this vision of divine beauty should extend over the eternity of life. Disturbed by the earthly life, they loathed as though it were a prison. And Dispensky continues to quote from Superconsciousness, and this is from page 381. St. Theognis says, A strange word will I say to thee. There is some hidden mystery which proceeds between God and the soul. This is experienced by those who achieve the highest heights of perfect purity of love and faith, when man changing completely unites with God as his own through ceaseless prayer and contemplation. And Dispensky continues, Certain parts of the writings of Clement of Alexandria, 2nd century, are remarkably interesting. And he now quotes from the Anti-Nicence Fathers Buffalo, the Christian Literature Published Company, 1885, Volume 2, pages 463 to 464, and this is the quote. It appears to us that painting appears to take in the whole field of view in the scenes represented, but it gives a false description of the view according to the rules of art, employing the signs that result from the incidence of the lines of vision. By this means, the higher and lower points of the view and those between are preserved, and some objects seem to appear in the foreground, and others in the background, and others to appear in some other way, on the smooth and level surface. So also philosophers copy the truth after the manner of a painting. End of quote. And Aspensky continues. Clement of Alexandria here reveals one very important aspect of truth, namely its inexpressibility in words, and the entire, uncon and the entire conditionality of all philosophical systems and formulations. Dialectically, truth is represented only in perspective, i.e. in an inevitably deformed shape, such as his idea. What time and labour would be saved, and from what enormous and unnecessary suffering would humanity save itself, could it but understand this one simple thing, that truth cannot be expressed in our language? Then would men cease to think that they possess truth, would cease to force others to accept their truth at any cost, would see that others may approach truth from another direction, exactly as they themselves approach it, by a way of their own. How many arguments, how many religious struggles, how much of violence towards the thoughts of others would be rendered unnecessary and impossible if men could only understand that nobody possesses truth, but all are seeking for it, each in his own way. The ideas of Clement of Alexandria about God are highly interesting, and closely approximate to those of the Vendetta, and particularly to the ideas of the Chinese philosophers. And Dispensky now quotes from Ibid, page 493. 
The discourse respecting God is the most difficult to handle, for since the first principle of everything is difficult to find out, the absolutely first and the oldest principle, which is the cause of all other things being and having been, is difficult to exhibit. For how can that be expressed which is neither genus, nor difference, nor species, nor individual, nor number, nay more, is neither an event, nor that to which an event happens? No one can rightly express this wholly, for on account of his greatness he is ranked as the All, and that is the capital A, and is the father of the universe, nor are any parts to be predicted of them. For the one is indivisible, wherefore also it is infinite, not considered with reference to its being without dimensions and not having a limit, and therefore it is without form or name, and if we name it we do not do so properly terming it either as the one or the good or mind or absolute being or father or God or creator or Lord. We speak not as supplying his name, but for want we use good names in order that the mind may have these as points of support, so as not to err in other respects. And that's the end of the quote. And Spensky continues, Among Chinese mystical philosophers, our attention is arrested by Lao Chua and Chuang Zi by the cleanliness of thoughts and the unusual simplicity with which they express the most profound doctrines of idealism. The sayings of Lao Tzu. The Tao which can be expressed in words is not the eternal Tao. The name which can be uttered is not the eternal name. And this is an abridged quotation from the sayings of Lao Tzu. Tao eludes the sense of sight and is therefore called colourless. It eludes the sense of hearing and is therefore called soundless. It eludes the sense of touch and is therefore called incorporeal. These three qualities cannot be apprehended and hence they may be blended into unity. Ceaseless in action, it cannot be named, but returns again to nothingness. We may call it the form of the formless, the image of the imageless, the fleeting of the indeterminable. There is something chaotic yet complete which existed before heaven and earth. Oh, how still it is, and formless, standing alone without changing, reaching everywhere without suffering harm. Its name I know not. To designate it I call it Tao. Endeavouring to describe it I call it Great. Being great it passes on, passing on it becomes remote. Having become remote it returns. The law of Tao is its own spontaneity. Tao, in its unchanging aspect, has no name. The mightiest manifestations of active force flow from Tao. Tao, as it exists in the world, is like the great rivers and seas which receive the streams from the valleys. All pervading is the great Tao. It can be at once on the right hand and on the left. Tao is a great square with no angles, a great sound which cannot be heard, a great image with no form. Tao produced unity. Unity produced duality. Duality produced trinity and trinity produced all existing objects. He who acts in accordance with Tao becomes one with Tao. All the world says that my Tao is great, but unlike other teachings. It is just because it is great that it appears unlike other teachings. If it had the likeness long ago, would its smallness have been known? The sage attends to the inner and not to the outer, but puts away the objective and holds to the subjective. The sage occupies himself with inaction and conveys instructions without words. Who is there that can make muddy water clear? 
But if allowed to remain still, it will gradually become clear of itself. Who is there that can secure a state of absolute repose? But let time go on, and the state of repose will gradually arise. Tao is eternally inactive, and yet it leaves nothing undone. The pursuit of book learning brings about daily increase, and in brackets, i.e. the increase of knowledge. The practice of Tao brings about daily loss, and in brackets, i.e. the loss of ignorance. Repeat the loss again and again, and you arrive at inaction. Practice inaction, and there is nothing which cannot be done. Practice inaction, occupy yourself with doing nothing. Leave all things to take their natural course, and do not interfere. All things in nature work silently. Among mankind, the recognition of beauty as such implies the idea of ugliness, and the recognition of good implies the idea of evil. Cast off your holiness, rid yourself of sagacity, and the people will benefit a hundredfold. Those who know do not speak, those who speak do not know. He who acts destroys, he who grasps loses. Therefore the sage does not act, and so he does not destroy, he does not grasp, and so he does not lose. The soft overcomes the hard, the weak overcomes the strong. There is no one in the world but knows this truth, and no one who can put it into practice. End of quote from Nao Cha. Dispensky now quotes from Chuang Zi. A meditation of Chuang Zi. You cannot speak of ocean to the well frog, the creature of a narrower sphere. You cannot speak of ice to the summer insect, the creature of a season. You cannot speak of Tao to a pedagogue, his scope is too restricted. But now that you have emerged from your narrow sphere and have seen the great ocean, you know your own insignificance, and I can speak to you of great principles. Dot, dot, dot. Dimensions are limitless, time is endless, conditions are not invariable, terms are not final. There is nothing which is not objective. There is nothing which is not subjective, but it is impossible to start from the objective. Only from the subjective knowledge is it possible to proceed to objective knowledge. When subjective and objective are both without their correlates, that is the very axis of Tao. Tao has its laws and its evidences. It is devoid both of action and of form. It may be obtained but cannot be seen. Spiritual beings draw their spirituality from Tao. To Tao, no point in time is long ago. Tao cannot be existent. If it were existent, it could not be non-existent. The very name of Tao is only adapted for convenience's sake. Predestination and chance are limited to material existences. How can they bear upon the infinite? Tao is something beyond material existences. It cannot be conveyed either by words or by silence. In that state, which is neither speech nor silence, its transcendent nature may be apprehended. And this is asterisked, Musings of a Chinese Mystic, Wisdom of the East series. And that is the end of quote, and Aspensky continues. In contemporary theosophical literature, two little books stand out, The Voice of the Silence by H.B. Blavatsky and The Light on the Path by Mabel Collins. In both of them, there is much of real mystical sentiment. Nespensky now quotes from The Voice of the Silence. He who would hear the voice of the silence, the soundless sound, and comprehend it, he has to learn the nature of the perfect inward concentration of the mind, accompanied by complete abstraction from everything pertaining to the external universe, or the world of senses. 
Having become indifferent to objects of perception, the pupil must seek out the raja of the senses, the thought producer, he who awakes illusions. The mind is the great slayer of the real. Let the disciple slay the slayer. For when to himself his form appears unreal, as do on walking all the forms he sees in dreams, when he sees to hear the many, he may discern the one, the inner sound which kills the outer. Then only, not till then, shall he forsake the region of Azat, the false, to come to the realm of Sat, the true. Before the soul can see, the harmony within must be attained, and fleshly eyes be rendered blind to illusion. Before the soul can hear, the image, and in brackets man, has to become as deaf to warnings as to whispers. He cries of bellowing elephants as to the silvery buzzing of the golden firefly. And then there are some dots, and then the outer ear will speak. And Dispensky continues to quote from the voice of the silence. And say, if thy soul smiles while bathing in the sunlight of thy life, if thy soul sings within her chrysalis of flesh and matter, if thy soul weeps inside the castle of illusion, if thy soul struggles to break the silver thread that binds her to the master, and in brackets, i.e. higher self of man, know, O disciple, thy soul is of the earth. And then there's some more dots. And Espensky continues to, quote, Give up thy life if thou wouldst live. Learn to discern the real from the false, and ever fleeting from the everlasting. Learn above all to separate head learning from soul wisdom, the I, and that's E-Y-E, in inverted commas, from the heart, also inverted commas, doctrine. Some more dots and a continuation of quote from Light on the Path. And that is the end of the quote, and Spensky continues, Light on the Path, like the voice of the silence, is full of symbols, hints and hidden meanings. This is a little book which makes demands upon the reader. Its meaning is elusive and it requires to be read in a fitting state of spirit. Light on the path prepares the disciple to meet the master, i.e. the ordinary consciousness for communion with the higher consciousness. According to the author of Light on the Path, the term the masters, and that's in inverted commas and in capitals, is a symbolic expression for the divine life. Uspensky continues to quote from Light on the Path. Before the eyes can see, they must be incapable of tears. Before the ear can hear, it must have lost its sensitiveness. Before the voice can speak in the presence of the masters, it must have lost the power to wound. Before the soul can stand in the presence of the masters, its feet must be washed in the blood of the heart. Dot, dot, dot. And the quote continues, Kill out all sense of separateness. Desire only that which is within you. Desire only that which is beyond you. Desire only that which is unattainable. For within you is the light of the world. Dot, dot, dot. If you are unable to perceive it within you, it is useless to look for it elsewhere. Dot, dot, dot. It is unattainable because it forever recedes. You will enter the light, but you will never touch the flame. Dot, dot, dot. Seek out the way. Look for the flower to bloom in the silence that follows the storm. Not till then. Dot, dot, dot. And on the deep silence, the mysterious event will occur, which will prove that the way has been found. 
Call it by what name you will. It speaks in a voice. It speaks where there is no one to speak. It is a messenger that comes, a messenger without form or substance. Or it is a flower of the soul that is opened. It cannot be described by any metaphor. Then there are some dots. And the quote continues. To hear the voice of the silence is to understand that from within comes only true guidance. Dot, dot, dot. For when the disciple is ready, the master is ready also. Hold fast to that which is neither substance or existence. Listen only to the voice which is soundless. Look only on that which is invisible. Dot, dot, dot. End of quote, and Aspinsky continues. Professor James calls attention in his book to the unusually vivid emotionality of mystic experiences and to the quite unusual sensations felt by mystics. The deliciousness of some of these states seems to be beyond anything known in ordinary consciousness. It inevitably involves organic sensibilities, for it is spoken of as something too extreme to be born and as verging on bodily pain. But it is too subtle and piercing a delight for ordinary words to donate. God's touches, the wounds of his spear, references to ebriety and to mystical union have to figure in the phraseology by which it is shadowed forth. The joy of communion with God, described by St. Simeon, the new theologian, and that's asterisked. Paul Anikiev, Mysticism of St. Simeon, the new theologian, St. Petersburg, 1906. 10th century, may serve as an example of such an experience. And Aspinsky quotes, I am wounded by the arrow of his love, writes St. Simeon. He is himself inside of me, in my heart. He embraces me, kisses me, fills me with light, dot, dot, dot. A new flower grows in me, new because it is joyous, dot, dot, dot. This flower is of an unutterable form, is seen when it grows merely, then suddenly disappears, dot, dot, dot. It is of indescribable appearance, attracts my mind to itself, causes forgetfulness of everything to do with fear, and then flies suddenly away. Then does the tree of fear remain again lacking fruit. I moan in sorrow and pray to thee, my Christ. Again I see the flower amid the branches. I chain my attention to it alone and see not the tree alone, but the brilliant flower attracting me to itself irresistibly. This flower grows in the end into the fruit of love, dot, dot, dot. Incomprehensible is it how from fear grows love. And that is the end of the quote. I'm going to leave it there for part two and continue with what Aspensky has to say about mysticism and religions in part three.